Om Bhur Bhuvaswa Om Tatsavitar Varaniyam Bhargo Devasya Dhimahi Dhiyo Yonaha Prachodayatom I bow to the God in all of you. I would like to read from my book of Guru's sayings, Conversations with Yogananda. This is a book of sayings that I collected over the time that I spent with him. And it's the basis of all these programs. This is number 50. The master on one occasion also Deliberately embarrassed. Now, this is a funny thing. I should have mentioned that before this, I've uh, written in the book about how he would sometimes discipline disciples who were perhaps a little too proud of themselves. He would put them in embarrassing situations so as to help them to stop thinking about themselves. This is the kind of teaching that a psychiatrist couldn't give you, and a teacher in school would be perhaps unwise to give you, but a great guru must do. And uh, let me read it again then. The master on one occasion also deliberately embarrassed Bernard. Bernard was an SRF minister who, when I knew him, conducted services in the SRF church in Hollywood, California. Certain women in the congregation had been saying they thought he would look well in a turban. The master made no comment on the point. However, he determined to quiet this little ripple of interest before it grew to become a wave. A formal Indian gathering had been scheduled. For the event, the master dressed Bernard in a turban. He wound a long strip of cloth with great care on the disciple's head, arranging it in such a way, however, that although the turban managed to stay on, it would slip lopsidedly over one eye, then over the other eye, and always manage to look ridiculous. Did Bernard enjoy the comedy as Dr. Lewis had, who told us the story? The fact that he never told me about it makes me suspect that he didn't relish it at all. He was the sort of person who might well have responded with Queen Victoria, We are not amused. It was an elderly nun who gleefully, but not unkindly, she's the one who told me the story. Well, this, this is something that um, was one of the more charming aspects of his training. It was so always appropriate. He didn't do the same thing to everyone. It was that because Bernard was sort of pompous and uh, self-important, it was very fitting for him. For another person, he would try to teach them gently. For another person, he would scold them. He always acted, and this was the amazing thing about him, he always acted appropriately for the moment uh, at hand. I really never saw him the same twice. I really had to, although I saw him many times, if I wanted to remember him, I had to look at a photograph. There was a story about Krishna that some painter was, was trying to paint his portrait. And Krishna kept changing in this same way, because a master 
has no ego, he reflects the moment. And each moment changed, and so perhaps the story is slightly exaggerated, but the, the artist said, well, um, sir, uh, how can I capture you if you keep changing? Finally, he got an inspiration, and he held up a mirror, and that was the picture of Krishna. You can't really uh, capture a master's face in the true way, no photograph, really does him complete justice because from one second to the next, I never saw such a motile face. It was always under, uh, well, he was just a flawless mirror to uh, whomever he was with. And because he had thousands of disciples, it doesn't mean at all that if they were angry, he looked angry. If they were proud, he looked proud. No. But what he did was reflect back to us our higher self helped us to see how our own higher self was looking down on us. It was a great opportunity to see in the mirror of his face what we needed to learn. We have to... Um, the trouble with going to psychiatrists is that they're always trying to mirror back your, your own ego to yourself. The ego is a very poor judge. The psychiatrist is a very poor judge. I remember... Years ago, I transferred from Haverford College to Brown University, and all new students had to see the campus psychiatrist. So I was talking to the campus psychiatrist, and we had a very nice rapport. And then he mentioned to me, I know that you like reading, and you have a good library. Tell me, I'm interested. What would you do if somebody were one night to come in and steal all your books? I said, oh, it would be all right by me. I wouldn't mind. He said, that's the first time you've said something that has disappointed me. And I thought, well, that's the first time you've said something that has disappointed me. Because he didn't understand how important non-attachment is. Yes, we can enjoy everything, but once it's over, why hang on to it? My guru one time went to Radio City Music Hall, which was a beautiful, splendid palace of a building. And... Uh, he said to himself, well, I've paid the ticket of admission, now this place is mine. So he went around and enjoyed all his treasures, his possessions and everything. And then when he left the uh, hall, then he um, gave the place back to the management, walked out freely. He told that story jokingly to show how that's how we should be with everything that we own. It isn't if you've owned a house for generations, it still doesn't belong to you. And, of course, when you die, somebody else will get it. When he dies, somebody else will get it. Each one will say, it's mine, it's mine. The one thing that holds us to this world is that thought, it's mine. This ego is mine. This house is mine. These clothes are mine. This bank account is mine. This wife or husband is mine. These children are mine. You know, if your little six-year-old child were to die and be reborn next door to you, would you know him? Chances are you wouldn't. You might certainly feel a certain fine fondness, affection for him, but you wouldn't know it was your real child. Nobody belongs to anybody. Nobody has anything. And all that is involved in achieving moksha is the understanding that this ego doesn't exist. You know, when God created the universe, he didn't have the way a carpenter would have a table with a saw to saw away at. 
He didn't have things out of which to make the universe. He had nothing. There was only infinite consciousness. Out of that infinite consciousness, he had to vibrate his thoughts. Now, that, if you told that to people even 100, 200 years ago, they wouldn't have understood it. It was only 100 years ago in 1905, I believe, that they discovered that matter is, in fact, energy. And scientists now know it's a truism that matter is really a vibration of energy. But if you take that little farther back, energy is a vibration of thoughts. And thoughts are a vibration of the infinite consciousness. So, as it says in the Bible in the beginning, in the first word of Genesis, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. The breath of delusion of Maya swept over the consciousness and on the surface of a little portion of the infinite consciousness, a little portion manifested this universe. And I emphasize that little portion because I remember when I was in school in England. It was in 1938, 1937, around then, that a teacher came to me and he said, you know that the stars you see out there are only part of one star system. They didn't have the word yet, as far as I know, galaxy. They called them uh, um, universes and island universes, they were called. And he said that, you know, they've discovered that there uh, is a universe, another universe in the constellation of Andromeda, and there may even be two or three other universes like that in existence, which we were all just aghast at this thing. Well, now they know that there are over a hundred billion universes, and think what that means. And this whole physical universe is just a small part of uh, sort of, as my Param Guru described it, as a little basket under a huge balloon, which is the astral universe of energy. And behind that, there is the infinitely large causal universe. Behind that is the spirit, which is, you can't think of it as larger, and therefore, really, in a sense, it's wrong even to say <clears throat> that he took a little portion of it. But there's so much of his consciousness that is not touched by this whole universe. I remember my guru describing one of his disciples when she died, and she achieved complete liberation, full moksha. And he said, I saw her sink into that watchful state. That's the state of God, watching this whole universe. That's what you need to do. You need to think that the goal of spiritual life is not just pleasing the gods and getting a little good karma and going to a higher astral planet. You know, there's another story. A saint in ancient India um, was tested by Durbasha, who was known as the angry one. And he was always going around testing saints. Anyway, he said to this saint, after he had, the saint had passed his test more than sufficiently, he said, you are fit to go to heaven even without, um, uh, even in your physical body. This is an ancient way of expressing that you reach a certain level of uh, spiritual development and you leave your body without losing consciousness. Most people lose consciousness and go through what the ancient Greeks called the waters of Lethe, which cause you to forget. But uh, he said that you, uh, you have earned the right to go to heaven uh, with a, in your physical body. Of course, you can't be in the, 
in heaven in a physical body because uh, it's made of a subtler substance. But the chariot came, and this uh, Deva said to him that he had come to bring him to heaven. And the saint said, well, just a minute, just a minute. He said, what, uh, what are the advantages of going to heaven? And Deva said, well, that's a very strange question to ask. Well, since you ask, you'll be able to be very blissful and live in a perfect environment, be able to mix with the de other devatas and so on, and uh, you'll have a very blissful existence. And the saint said, well, this sounds very interesting, and I appreciate your coming for me, but I have seen that everything in manifestation has its minuses as well as its pluses. What are the disadvantages of going to heaven? And the deva said, well, you're a very strange fellow indeed, but since you've asked me, I have to answer. He said that you stay in heaven as long as your good karma lasts, but then there comes a time when your old desires begin to reawaken, and just like in autumn when the leaves begin to fall, so your happiness in that world begins to diminish. And finally, you realize you, you have to go back. You have this desire, and it's desire that impels you back to this world. Nobody forces you. You force yourself because you haven't expiated all your desires. And so, eventually, <coughs> you come back here. I had a reading in the Brigu Sanghita, which said that the, I was there during the time of the Battle of Kurukshetra, and because of my good deeds, I lived for... 700 years in the astral world. Well, here I am back again in this stupid old body. What was the good of it? What uh, I, I know from childhood, I've always felt that world was more real to me than this one. But what is that reality? If you're seeking God, you don't even want the astral world. There's still an ego when you have the astral world. Your job, if you want to know God, is to get rid of the ego. Your job is to realize that he, in creating you, manifested himself as you. He had no other way to do it. All of us are his own consciousness, manifested in a physical body. The soul is the ego attached to the body, because as we go into outward manifestation, there is that thought that that's what our reality is. And so we begin to see the body, we begin to see the things around the body, we become attached to it. It's only after you've been through many ups and downs, every fulfillment leads to a disappointment. Every joy leads to a sorrow. This is the way of maya, it's the way of dvaita. You cannot get away from it. You will never say, just as you see people at a football game, at a cricket match, at the... Uh, anything that they think they're going to win, and they go, oh, well, we've won, we've won, and the next day, what have you got? Probably you got drunk and got excited, and now you have a hangover. Whatever it is, you have a hangover anyway, because this is the nature of the world. You can't get away from it. We've got to get away from the ego, and that does not mean to kill the ego. You can never kill anything. Nothing is destroyed. What you've got to understand, finally is that your ego is a manifestation of him. Thus, first of all, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, nishkam karma, no, no, have no desire for the fruits of your actions, so that you 
It isn't that you stop acting. You've got to continue acting. But you've got to understand that it isn't for you that you're doing it. So do everything for him. Do everything in freedom. You can do anything in perfect freedom, yes. The next thing is, and that's a part of Nishkam Karma, to see him as the doer. You know, many years ago, I was giving a lecture. This was in about 1954, a little while ago, maybe 55. And I remember that my guru had said that let God and guru speak through you. And I thought, well, I'm speaking. I should stop speaking and let them speak. So I remained silent for two minutes. Now, you know, two minutes when you're standing up there in the middle of a talk with a lot of people in front of you listening, that's a long pause, isn't it? Well, I suddenly realized I don't, it isn't that I let them do it. I've got to act. I will reason. I will will. I will act. That is what you have to do. Now, we will have a little bit of music that will, I think, be a nice closing to this program. God bless you. Life flows on like a river that homes to the sea. In veils, one hour winding through a lee, none may linger on the way, none may coax time to stay. Fleeting scenes move by us like a dream. Cling not, none will be your own, lest you grieve to be alone. Go within you, there's your Lest you grieve too.